I'm really excited to be able to share with you for the next few minutes the inspiring story of a very talented black athlete, someone unfortunately who is largely forgotten by the general public, his name Jimmy Winkfield. He was a jockey, in fact, the last of the great black jockeys. And uh, his story is told in a new book called Black Maestro, the Epic Life of an American Legend. The author is Joe Drape, a reporter for the New York Times and uh, also the author of The Race for the Triple Crown. He has really done a, a great job here of, of telling us a, an important story and also laying it carefully within the context of, of the historic precedent for the great black jockeys who uh, left such a mark on their sport and, uh, and also the heartbreaking story of how that began to turn and how these opportunities began to be taken away from these gifted young writers. Writers. The book, again, is published by William Morrow, a division of HarperCollins. The book, again, called Black Maestro. And Joe Jape, we welcome you to the morning show. Greg, thanks for having me. This story is so odd when we compare it, for instance, to the story of someone like uh, Jackie Robinson or Althea Gibson. I mean, we are so often talking about the first black to break into the ranks of a given sport. This is exactly the opposite. When we talk about Jimmy Wingfield, we are talking about the last black. It's such an odd thing. Just, just help us understand that for a moment, about how the story of an inspiring black athlete can be such a sort of a story in reverse from those which we're normally uh, concerned with. Well, what happened is, you know, people don't realize that 15 of the first 28 Kentucky Derbies were won by black riders, and it makes a lot of sense, which I found in my research, is, you know, slaves took care of the horses in central Kentucky and in, in Virginia. They were the trainers, the grooms, the riders. Uh, horses were treasures. There was a whole handed-down legacy of slaves, of black men, teaching the younger generation how you handle a horse. So, you know, Civil War comes. They're emancipated. Yes, they, they go right into the Derby. They are the most famous athletes in America at the time, next to boxers. But there's a backlash to Reconstruction, and Jim Crow laws start coming down. Uh, you can't ride on the same bus, the same train, separate water fountains. And going hand-in-hand hand with that, there's an influx in New York of Irish immigrants coming into the states. And there's an organized crime element of Irish gangsters up here, and they figure out, hey, these little street urchins, we can teach to box, cycle, and ride horses. We can buy them from their parents for 25 bucks a year. And we can send them out to all these tracks and take a cut of their earnings. And that's exactly what happened. So you, know, you had Jim Crow from the macro, and then inside the track you had these white boys, and they were tough guys, and uh, they were just trying to survive too. But they're riding side-by-side side with these African-American jockeys and punching them, running them into the rails. I mean, Jimmy almost died in Chicago in 1902 uh, because a guy ran him into the rail because they wanted the black jockeys off the circuit. So, you know, it, I, I came across this story. I covered horse racing for the Times. I see two paragraphs on Jimmy Wingfield. He's the last black jockey to win the Derby in 1901 and 1902, one of four ever to do it back-to-back. Back. But, you know, what really caught my eye, Greg, is not only 
what kicked him out of America, but then this remarkable life he embarks on there. I mean, you know, some people call him a, a real-life Forrest Gump. He lived through two world wars and was like a principal participant in the, uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. He has this extraordinary trail drive that makes Lonesome Dove look like a walk in the park of saving 262 of the finest horses in America or in all the world, in Europe, driving them from uh, Odessa, 1,100 miles over three months to Warsaw, getting shot at by the Bolsheviks, starving along the way. Uh, you know, again, Hitler, World War II, and he ends up back here in Depression-era America. So, you know, in total, uh, he it's, it's very sad what happened to him. It would be like LeBron James right now being told, hey, you can't play in the NBA anymore. You got to go make a living somewhere else, but that's exactly what happened to Jimmy. And it's well, and and of course, it didn't just happen to him, but it happened to uh, all all of his compatriots, his colleagues, his fellow black jockeys. It's interesting too, as you help us understand the historic context and that period when there were many great black jockeys. It's it's interesting what they were able to enjoy. You said the, the racetrack offered dignity to a black man who had a touch with horses, but it was a dignity that could be challenged at any time and taken away in an instant. I mean, at a glance, it might appear that, that black jockeys were, were being treated equally. In fact, that was never quite the case, but at least it was a place where they really had some opportunities that would have been more elusive in other arenas. Yeah, and there's an old slave slave saying that uh, was passed down by these jockeys is the only two place men are equal are on the turf and below it. Basically saying at the track there is this uneasy respect and then when you were dead. And you know, Jimmy grew up at a time where 300 people, many of them his neighbors, were getting hung all around him. Uh, if you'd looked at a white guy cross or said something that offended his family, uh, that you could be beaten, or worse, hung, shot. And, you know, I, I outline a couple of those things. So, And you uh, also, uh, if I may jump in, there's that uh, uh, the, uh, quote, quote that just kind of makes us ill. Uh, you quote some kind of publication from down south saying, well, the favorite Christmas tree decoration this year uh, seems to be black men hanging from nooses. Right, I right. Mean, it's a chilling, chilling thought. You know, and it was a chilling time, and uh, I will give Jimmy, I think that whole period pray, braced him and prepped him for what was to come. I mean, I think the things that he learned there was, A, he had an incredible gift with horses, and he worked hard on it. In those days, you didn't just show up and get on a horse. Seven years old, he was taken in, given the oral tradition by older grooms and trainers. He didn't really get on his first horse till he was 14. Uh, he didn't ride his first race until he was 18. It was old school. You worked your way up from top to bottom. So, you know, he knew he had a gift. He knew he had to work to keep with that gift. And he also knew that he was in a precarious place in society that at any moment, as you mentioned, it could be taken away from you. Hmm. I'm reminded of, of one of these earlier figures who you tell us about, someone named Isaac Murphy. And you say he was... Uh, uh, among jockeys, he was the biggest black star of them all, and in fact, the biggest star in all of American sports at at his peak, uh, which is really something. 
You go on to say a little later, after kind of outlining his career, he was a star, even if he was one that shone in a segregated and subservient constellation. Yeah, Isaac Murphy was, you know, horse racing was our national sport at that time in the 1870s and 1880s. Uh, and, you know, it makes sense. Baseball was just in its infancy. Boxers were pretty big, but Isaac Murphy had it all. He was a well-spoken African-American. He even had a white valet, something Jimmy emulated when he got to Russia. Uh, he was making more money than any other athlete in there. But sure enough, you know, and it goes back to this taken away. He wins all these derbies, all these American futurities, the Belmont. He's still one of the most decorated riders ever. But near the end of his career, and he was a young man at the end of his career, he was accused of being a drunk, being a drug user, and basically was racially tinged insults that happened. And, you know, you'd read the language in the newspapers of the day, and, you know, they all but are out using words that we wouldn't even say in public. Hmm. One of the things that is kind of touching as we follow Jimmy's development as a jockey is that we realize that this is the kind of trade which one did not learn by going to school someplace. You, You really learned it by hanging around the track, by talking to other jockeys, by, uh, in, in a sense, really needing the generosity and, and, and interest of, of people who are already in the business. And apparently, Jimmy had a, a, a real, real gift for getting people to open up to him and to, to share this life with him. And, of course, the other thing is he was observing the every move of, of the great jockeys on, on how they did what they did and why. And Greg, that's a, really a great point to pick up. This was a guy who found the right benefactors from age seven on. Uh, he'd sit on that fence, those limestone fences, and watch those boys ride the horses around. And then he finally bugged them enough, and they'd bring them into the barn. They'd teach them how to rub the horse. They'd start telling them what means what, you know, what touch means what. Uh, he hooks up with a couple of old white trainers, you know, small-time guys. One's daddy was the mayor of Lexington, dedicated horseman. They start putting him through the paces where he can only walk a horse for a while. Then they give him a stopwatch and say, okay, click off a quarter of a mile. They make him walk every inch of the track every day because it's in his job to know where every rock, pebble, hole is. Uh, he then goes and hooks up in Chicago with Big Ed Corrigan, who's one of my favorite figures out of this whole thing, who is the owner and builder of Hawthorne Racetrack, who is a gangster and a gambler. And uh, Basically, he had hired Isaac Murphy. He and Isaac Murphy had won a bunch of races together, so he had an affinity for African Americans. And, uh, you know, this guy gets in incredible brawls, but at the same time, has a soft spot for Jimmy, and he gives him a start. Uh, when he gets to Russia, and, and you know, we've, you've just pointed out the educational art. There's no school books involved in this. Jimmy had a seventh grade education. He was five feet, 100 pounds. Uh, when he finally gets run out of America after this remarkable run at the Derbies, he goes over to Russia by himself with a Polish to English dictionary because he's going to Warsaw, and he meets this man. At Michael Lazarus and Jack Keen, who was an old horseman from Kentucky, and Keeneland Racetracks named after him, 
had been over there and he'd gotten run out of Russia allegedly for cheating. So he hooks those two guys up. And Michael Lazareff is not only a dedicated horseman, he's as rich as the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds at the time. He's an Armenian who controls the Baku oil fields. He has a sterling operation and who really wanted to breed racehorses that could run in England and France and, you know, take his place among the kings and captains of industry. And, you know, this guy imparts all his knowledge to, to Jimmy. I mean, that really, you know, his gift and this knack for, I guess, just soaking up all the knowledge out of people who were smarter than him. Hmm. Of course, things change so dramatically for him, and one of the things that changes the the, the prospects for uh, black writers is uh, the creation of something called the Anti-Colored Union, and uh, the way in which uh, the Jockey Club of, of New York City began organizing itself uh, more like a private club with all kinds of regulations, which among other things seem to uh, begin running blacks out, out of the business. You say that some of those efforts were to try to bring the chaos of horse racing under some control, but, but how tragic that towards that end uh, it would be carried out in the way that it was and, it, and that measure of control would be extended to exclude these gifted black jockeys. You know, they had high-minded goals, but unfortunately, they were low-minded folks. And these were some of the richest industrials in the world, industrialists in the world at the point. Uh, the jockey club, yes, they wanted to say, okay, let's everybody get under one group, have one set of rules, one set of infractions, one set of punishments, because there were tracks all over everywhere. There were more than 300 at the time. But the jockey club also was formed to keep... Jews and Italians out of the ownership ranks, and eventually to take blood to keep blacks off the racetrack. And the anti-colored union was fronted by the white jockeys who were up here in New York, but it was really these guys involved in it because New York didn't like the African-American influence. They weren't used to it like they were down south in Kentucky. And the African-Americans were the best riders, and they'd have to come up here and win all their races. And this irked the power structure here. And uh, down south, they wanted to keep riding black riders, and it was just a matter of economics. These fights and skirmishes that would break out in the racetracks was hurting their horses, and they couldn't risk their horse to ride a guy like Jimmy anymore. Hmm. And, of course, that's one of the most heartbreaking things, too, is that you know you have these jockeys who are looking for mounts, looking for trainers who will let them, the jockeys, ride a, a given horse. And uh, you talk about how, for Jimmy, one of the most heartbreaking things was not only his own difficulty in getting mounts, but he would see some of the greatest black jockeys who had ever ever been uh, now forced into this, this situation of in, indignity, of having to sort of go almost like beggars from trainer to trainer, desperate for, for one to, to, to be willing to take the risk to allow a black jockey to ride their horse. I mean, these black jockeys who had tasted such great success and triumph just years before. It was devastating for him up here in New York to see Willie Sims, who not only had won all these Belmonts, won derbies, he's in the Hall of Fame now, but he was the first American rider to go to England. 
and rode for the queen over there and, and killed him over there. They hated him over there because he won everything. And, you know, two years after that, after being at the top of the world, he's out here in Belmont Park doing the same thing Jimmy is. You know, please let me ride. I'll ride a couple of your nags this morning if you give me a mount in the afternoon. And this was a guy Jimmy got to learn from because they were at Latonia Park together. Jimmy was just an apprentice trainer groom at that point. Sims was the, the biggest jockey. He'd follow Sims around, and he'd watch him when he was working out horses. And, uh, you know, he knew that the, Jimmy had foresight, too, because before he left, he knew he had to leave the country five years before he left because he saw what was going on with Sims. And he thought, you know, if the greatest rider in the world can't get a ride, what am I going to do? Hmm. Well, of course, he returns to Kentucky, where, uh, where, where black jockeys still enjoyed uh, fair access to the race and there. Uh, to the racing world, and there he manages to win the Kentucky Derby twice, uh, twice in a row, and uh, the first time riding a horse called His Eminence and uh, achieving this great, great uh, success. At one point in the book, you talk about how uh, this figure of Jimmy Wingfield uh, had going for him an interesting combination of dignity and street smarts. Yeah, I mean, it, Jimmy was no saint. He knew enough. He could mix. He's one of those people who can mix with the czars and the princes, which he did frequently, and who could play a good dice game in the back room of a black boarding house. And he did know where his place was in any given room. In fact, his I got cross-eyed from a night in Chicago, rolling dice, drinking moonshine. In Chicago, where he was probably most comfortable he hung down on the south side in the gambling halls and brothels of the Tenderloin District. And he knew the score. He knew who he could trust and who he couldn't trust. And he also had this great personal elan and style, uh, these nice double-breasted suits, these sweater vests were his trademark. And he could waltz into a room full of rich aristocracy, white folks, and not look out of place, too. And that, of course, served him well in this business as well. He, uh, he realizes, of course, that America is an increasingly dangerous place and really an increasingly impossible place for him to uh, pursue this work. So he heads abroad. And, of course, that's where some of the most extraordinary adventures happen uh, for, for uh, Wingfield. Tell our listeners really quickly the, the story of the saving of the horses. I mean, this is something straight out of a movie script. He's up in Odessa, which is the Saratoga of the Empire at this point. The revolution's in full bore. He considers himself a white Russian, meaning aristocracy. He's up there with some rich guys. They, like everybody, think, okay, we're waited out here. We're beat back to Bolsheviks, and then we'll go back and return to our high life. April 4th, 1919, comes along, cannons boom, the French abandon, all of a sudden, Odessa's under siege. <clears throat> There's an old Polish officer named Jerchevich who had a plan, who saw this coming. Just like that, two dozen men round up 262 horses and the women and children and start to drive towards Warsaw. they got to go a long way 
away, Bucharest to drop the kids and children and women off. The whole time, they're getting shot at. You know, thoroughbreds are not meant to be ridden 1,100 miles over three months. They're meant to run fast two minutes every two weeks. So they're starving. There's no food to be had. When they go into villages, they're beset upon by people who think they're gypsies. So, you know, this was one of the most remarkable, remarkable things. Uh, and, you know, to this day, Greg, that is like one of the greatest moments in Polish history because when they get to Warsaw, it's now independent Poland. Uh, they've been liberated from the Russian Empire. And if you're good with a horse in that part of the world, you're known to have a touch of Wingfield. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, no, it was the most fun of the research was trying to piece together this 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 just harrowing journey. Well, and of course, his life is is fascinating even from there, and the the success he's able to enjoy in Europe as a jockey, and then how it kind of all comes crashing down in the tragedy of losing his son, and and then rebuilding his life, and and eventually returning to America. Uh, raising horses and ex- establishing success for himself in another way. Tell our listeners the intriguing way in which you open this book. I think you are making such an interesting point here as you uh, tell the story which you do in the book's introduction from the 3rd of May, 1961. And he was invited back to the 61 Derby. The week before, Sports Illustrated does a nice long piece set in France where he's living about this guy, uh, this last black rider, this two-time winner. And it had been 60 years before that he right, would have won the Derby. 60 years. He's had this interesting life of trail drives, wars, Bolsheviks. So they invite him to a dinner at the Brown Hotel, which is the luxury hotel still there in Louisville, Kentucky. He goes with his 37-year-old daughter, Lillianne, who at the time, is married to a white surgeon who's a graduate of Fisk University who is a liberated liberal woman. They go up to the front door. Another black man, the, the porter, doorman there, says, we don't let you people come in. They kind of look at each other. He says, you know, we're invited guests. No, no blacks are allowed here. You can't come in the front door. And to me, that moment said everything. It said, here's a guy who's accomplished everything still not being recognized but it also said what jimmy was jimmy didn't yell jimmy didn't go to the back door jimmy stood there and kept sending the guy back in go find the guy from sports illustrated go find the guy from sports illustrated he basically warmed down and walked in that front door 20 minutes late but he did it with great style and dignity again the word dignity i keep coming back with him and You know, he faced this room full of white people. Nobody talked to him. He kept a big smile on his face, and he left through the front door. And to me, that kind of, I chose to open it that way because that encapsulated who he was and what he had dealt with. It's an amazing story, and I suppose uh, it must be especially thrilling for you to tell a story that uh, up until now has been so obscure. I mean, you are really righting a wrong here, in a sense, by helping the American public understand and appreciate this important figure from our sports history. You know, you hope to shed a little light on it. Uh, you know, books are labors of love. Uh, somebody told me 
They're literate people's lottery. None of us get rich on this. Uh, I cover horses, among other things, for the times. I've been just entranced with the whole sport and the characters involved in it. And you better want to love in your subject, because otherwise it is just work. And when I came across him, you know, it, op- it offered an opportunity to just try to learn this tapestry of history, of you know, European and global history. Uh, try to get American, the American scene when it was probably its most racist, uh, to lay it over this beautiful sport. And, you know, I don't mean being to be flip when I say this, but, you know, for four and a half years in my reporting and in my writing, I got to be a five-foot black man at the turn of the century going through this world wide-eyed. And you, you try to put yourself in, you know, ten times a day, I said, what could he have possibly thought when he saw this? And uh, it was fun. And, uh, and if people can take this story, and it really transcends sports and it transcends horses. It's a story about a guy who never quit. It's that simple. And got to see a wonderful world. And, you know, he made some mistakes. We all do. He's like many celebrities and athletes. He was very flawed. One very good husband was a better father late in life. But, you know, he had a remarkable life, and people should know about it. And thankfully now they can, through your wonderful book called Black Maestro, The Epic Life of an American Legend, published by William Morrow, the author Joe Drape. Joe Drape, this is uh, really an exceptionally interesting book, and I'm really glad we could talk about it today on The Morning Show. I'm glad you wrote the book, and thank you for joining me uh, uh, on The Morning Show. It was my pleasure. It was a tremendous conversation. Thank you for having me.